Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, I wonder what it would have been like to be one of those early Jewish Christians. You've been waiting for centuries for Messiah to come. He shows up and, and you're pretty pumped. And then he dies. But then he's resurrected and then he goes to heaven. But he says he's going to be back. And so you're waiting. And, and, and what, what you heard, just like we oftentimes do, a, a, bu- a bunch of us heard, you know, well, he's coming back soon. But we don't realize that soon to God means something differently what soon means to, to, to you and me. And so you're one of those early Christians and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. Now you've got to be pretty excited that your deliverer, Messiah, has come, and you've seen him raised from the dead, you've seen the miracles, and you think, wow, God's finally on our side. And you've got to remember that the Jews were, were, um, were an occupied territory at this time by, by the Roman Empire. And so you think, wow. Life is finally going to be good. Life is finally going to go well. And then after a little while, Jesus isn't back. And a persecution arises. And it becomes so great that you and your friends have to run for your lives, scattering to various regions of of Judea and some going even further away, leaving Jerusalem, living as as refugees and living as, as exiles. And somehow the the religious leaders that were the enemies of Jesus, you can't figure out how or why. He's supposed to be coming back after all, but they've gotten the upper hand. And then as time goes on, things get worse. The Roman government begins to listen to them. And the Roman government begins to turn more and more against you. And in a little while, you discover that the Roman government itself is hunting down your leaders. It's putting some of them to death. Your religion is on its way to becoming illegal in the Roman Empire. A guy named Nero becomes the emperor. He's a crazy man. He's a cruel man. He blamed the Christians for the great fire that destroyed two-thirds of Rome in July 64. He would take Christians and he would dip them in oil and tar and use them to light his gardens for his wild parties. And all of this is happening, and and you've got to be asking the age-old question, you know, what is going on, God? What is happening here? It's one of the oldest questions that men and women have asked. When we think we finally got life figured out, we think that now that we figured out who our God is and we've come on his side instead of things going well, it's as if all hell breaks loose when the storm comes. And at that point, we ask what today I want us to look at what we'll call the big question. It's there in your life notes near the top. Where is God when horrible things happen to good and godly people? Now, for some of us in our lives, that's a very real question. Some of you may be living that right now. That's where you're living. But for most of us, it's somewhat theoretical. 
We want to know why bad things happen to good people. Not only bad things, but why do sometimes horrible things happen to good and godly people? Now, I want to remind you for a little bit what what it was like to be a a refugee back then. You're running for your life, and and this is not a culture of mobility like we have today. So it's not something where you can easily just just move from one area to another, one region to another, even to their urban cities, which would be quite small compared to our urban cities today. You can't just go there and find your little niche and and rebuild your life or or hide behind things. There's no ATM networks to access money or funds. There's no credit cards. Transportation is slow. Everything was all about connections and families and and careers and callings in life went from generation to generation. Land went from generation to generation. It wasn't the mobile society that we have today. There's no Zillow. There's no Airbnb. You've got none of that. And if you stop and think about it as you're scattered somewhere in a place that you've never seen before, you've never been able to go on the travel channel and kind of look and check it out before before moving there. You can't go and Google it. You know, there's no email. There's no snail mail particularly. You don't even have a photograph of where you used to live, of your previous life. And this is what you get for following God? It's really an ancient question. It's been part of mankind's question since the garden. Did you know the first book that was written in the Bible deals with it? You know, for a lot of us, we think the first book of of the Bible, you know, is being Genesis because that's the first of the 66 books in our our Old and New Testament. But in the chronology of when they were written, the first book, the very first question that got raised was the question of why do horrible and bad things happen to good and godly people? And it's a book called Job. And as far as being written, it was the first one that was written even before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. The story opens up with with Job being the the most righteous of all people. And God and Satan are having a discussion about this man, Job. And for reasons that I don't have a clue about, God lets Satan touch Job's life in horrible, horrible ways, testing him to see if he would deny God. God knowing that he won't do it. God's limiting what Satan can do, but still, I don't know about you, but I'm glad my name isn't Job. Job's friends, friends, I'll put that in quotations, had all the answers, just like you and I do for our friends. Oh, well, God's ticked off at you. You did something wrong there. You've got to be lying about it. You've got a secret in your closet that you're not sharing. And Job's like, no, 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 there's nothing that I know of. And then Near the end of the book, God basically shows up. He says, shut up and have Job pray for you. And then God asks a bunch of hard questions that they can't answer. And then he disappears, never fully answering the question of why do horrible things happen to good and godly people? Well, we're in 1 Peter. This is the book that we're studying that we began, as I said, last week. And last week, we looked at the background of the human author of this book. And consider the first couple of verses. And again, if you didn't catch it, you can always go into the podcast. If you don't know how to do that, let me know. We can help you out there. Now, it's written by the Apostle Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, or chosen people. We sang about that a few moments ago in our, in, our, in our worship time there. And here's how he describes them. He says that they are strangers in the world, that they've been scattered that they were exiled, that they are refugees in Pontus and Galatia 
and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, which all those provinces are in what is now what we would call modern-day Turkey. He writes this entire letter to give them advice and to give them instruction and to give them perspective on what to do when the storms of life come. Now, in the last chapter of the book, where he's summing everything up, he tells us exactly why he wrote this book. In 1 Peter 5, verse 12, and I've got it there on your, on your life notes, if you look at it with me. He says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. By the way, that answers something that if you were here last week, I brought up when I was talking about Peter. You know, got to remember, he was a fisherman. He wasn't a very well-educated, learned man like the Apostle Paul was. Peter's more of an action kind of guy. Well, Peter told the story, but the guy that wrote it down was actually a guy named, named Silas. He wrote it down for them. So it's kind of like, well, with the help of a guy who, who actually knows grammar, I'm going to put this whole thing together for you. So he continues there. I've, I've, I've put there, there in your life notes. I've written to you briefly for what purpose, Peter? Encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Now, we're going to come back to this passage later when we come to it at the end of this book in a, in a few weeks. But even right now, you might want to circle or underline that in your Bible. This phrase, this is the true grace of God. Because in our mind, the way it works for all of us is when the storm comes, we're going through the experiences, like I just described, of an early Jewish follower of Jesus. You're saying, so this is his unmerited favor? This is what his, his mercy looks like? Why doesn't he give it to somebody else? And Peter writes this book, this entire book, to give them that sense of understanding. And he says, I know that I, I wrote this to you so that you would understand, surprise, this truly is the true grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So though everything in you wants to run, though everything in you is confused, stand firm in it. Now, there are two things that, that when the storm comes in life that we need. The first is perspective. We need kind of a 30,000-foot view, or we need the view of someone who's gone through this stuff before. We need some sense of experience when the storm comes to, to understand what in the world is going on, and that's called perspective. We also need a second thing, and that's called a game plan. We need to know what to do. In our passage today that we're going to look at in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, it's all about perspective. Peter starts his letter and he says, I'm going to help you understand what you have, why you're going through trials, and why some things are confusing. I'm going to give you some perspective, he's saying. And then next week, we'll pick it up at verse 13 and through the continuing weeks after that, through the rest of the book where he says, therefore... Therefore, in light of the stuff I just said in the first part of chapter 1, therefore, this is what you need to do. Now, why is perspective so important when we read this passage? Well, let me talk about it a little bit. Mostly because perspective changes the way that we look at things. It changes how we evaluate things. It changes how we respond to things. Why does a two-year-old think that waiting five minutes is an eternity? Some of you are uncomfortable with that pause. <laughs> Why does a trust fund baby think that it's, it's the end of the world if he or she has to, has to fly in coach class? 
Why does uh, a little league parent scream at, yell at a volunteer umpire who made a questionable call? In each and every case, it's a lack of perspective. They can't see the big picture. And we've probably all had the experience, possibly the embarrassment of lack of perspective, haven't we? There's a phrase that I end up using usually sometime in January, sometime each year, and I, and it, and I really use it as in jest and, and joking. Most of you know that I you know, am a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes, okay? In case you didn't know, now you do. And some people may think, well, he's always wearing the black shirt with the red block O on it. I've got like three or four of these things. I've also got a white one. I've got a red one. So don't think I'm wearing the same shirt every day. Those of you that played pickleball with me yesterday, it was a different black shirt. I, I, I enjoy college football. I really don't follow it, I'll be honest. With you. I really don't start following it until usually the, the late summer because I don't have time to do it all year round like, like some people do. And I don't have the, the mind for the statistics and remembering all the stats and everything like, like Bill Holbert. He's got a wonderful mind for remembering, remembering things like that. I don't. But usually, you know, the Buckeyes get into, into a good position like we did last week, you know, where we did play in the national championship. But in case you didn't hear, we lost. Okay. And usually, and, and Alabama had a great team. You have to give that to them. They, they played fantastic. And usually, uh, sometime during that time, I tell Lou, we're sitting there in the, in, the, in the living room watching the game, and what do I say? It's only football. It's only football. It puts it in perspective. And those of you who are Seattle Seahawks fans, you can use this for your team too, okay? The Saints are still playing this afternoon against the Buccaneers. It's only football. And what am I doing? That's perspective. And Peter writes this to give us perspective. The reason perspective changes everything is because then you see the bigger picture. In 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a, there's a great story, verses 8 through 18. It's about a prophet named Elisha. He was a protege of Elijah, and he's, he's giving advice to the nation of Israel. Now, Israel wasn't the, the king of Israel wasn't a very godly king at this time, and, and Israel wasn't doing very well, but, but nonetheless, God still had his prophets, his men of God that gave advice to the king. And so the king of Aram, his people are, are raiding Israel. Elisha's giving advice, and, and he's thwarting the, the raiding parties of, of the king of Aram because of this, because the Israelites knew what was coming, what was going to happen. And so the king of Aram wanted to know what's going on. He thought, I've got a, I must have a mole within my own organization here because this is going on. And so he started looking for the mole within, within the Aramans. And then somebody said, it's that prophet Elijah. And he knows everything we plan to do. He even knows what you say on your bed, king. You know, that's a scary thought if you're the king. And so the king goes, okay, we're going to go after this guy, Elijah. He takes his army and they go down to the city of Dotham where, where Elisha is living. And they surround it. In the morning, Elisha's servant gets up and goes outside and, and looks around and he sees, whoa, the army of Aram just surrounding, surrounding the city. And he said, what are we going to do? And Elisha says these words, and I want to I read them to you. He tells his servant, he says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
This is the army of the Lord. The servant didn't see it. He didn't have the spiritual eyes to see it when he first went out there. And so what was his reaction? It was fear. It was fear. And so Elisha prayed and said, Lord, help my buddy here to see things. Help him to see who you are. Help him to see what you're going to do. That's what perspective does. It's what we learn the longer we walk with God, the closer we walk with God. We learn to trust God because all those times when we thought the armies were all around us and God was nowhere, we learned that he was actually everywhere. It's perspective. So let's dig into 1 Peter chapter 1 and look together at these verses, verses 3 through 12, written to a group of people who were scattered and in the middle of a stormy persecution. It starts out this way in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they're in deep weeds. They've got a lot of bad stuff going on. And he starts out, praise God. Not for your deep weeds, but because of this. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now, you might want to underline this in your Bible or in your notes there, so when you come back to it, you'll see, because a lot of us would say, well, well praise God and his grace, he's, he's, he's cured my disease, or he's cured my cancer, or he's given me the job I've been seeking, or he's, he's, he's fixed my problem. That's not what he says. He says, in his great mercy, here's what he's done. He's given us new birth. He's given us salvation. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade, kept in heaven for you. Is there any more secure place than heaven? That's where your inheritance is. Who through faith are shielded by God's power. Despite all you're going through, he's saying you're shielded, you're protected by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Your real salvation has only begun when you start to follow Jesus, but it's not going to be consummated until Jesus comes again. And in verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he says this salvation is so amazing. It's the quintessential example of God's mercy. And it's so awesome that even though you're going to go through things that are tough right now, keep your eyes on that and rejoice in that so that you can go through this. I want you to note a phrase that we're going to come back to. He says, though, for now you may have had to suffer grief. You may have had to suffer grief. He's not saying every trial is for this purpose. He's not even saying he knows exactly why they're going through all their suffering. But he says, it may be because of one of these reasons that these things are happening. In verse 7, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. So the reason that you're going through these trials may be to test the genuineness of your faith, of our faith. Peter says you need to get perspective on salvation and, 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 and your problems and, and faith and all these things. The goal of your faith is not to fix everything. The goal of your faith is to fix your greatest problem. What are you going to do when you stand before a holy God? He says you're going to receive the goal of your faith if you're a believer in Christ, your salvation. He continues in verse 10. He says, concerning this salvations, the prophets, and, and here he's speaking of guys like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and Daniel, who are the prophets in what we call our Old Testament. The prophets who spoke of the grace, what is grace? Unmerited favor that, that was going to come to God's followers and eventually come to, to, to you, he says. They searched intently and with greatest care. Why? Because they were trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, keep in mind, remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. So he's saying that they had these prophecies about a Messiah that was going to suffer and also gain glory, and they're trying to figure all this out. They They don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. They don't understand everything. They're trying to figure out how was this going to work? And in verse 12, he says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look upon such things. And then verse 13, which we'll pick up, there, says, therefore, and he gives instructions. Now, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to step back and I want to mind the depth of this perspective thing that he talks about in this passage. Perspective about our salvation, perspective about trials, and perspective about confusion that we have sometimes because of God's silence. Because when the storm comes, there's three things that we need to see clearly. And these are on the back of your life notes there. The first thing we need to see clearly is we need to see our salvation. Now, if there was ever a church word, would you agree with me? That's it. Salvation. You know, how, how often do you use that outside of the context of theology and religion and church, particularly Christianity? If somebody's about to drown, though, in this, in this pool here, and they were rescued, they were, they were saved from the water, that's salvation. If someone's in a, in a burning building and they're pulled out, they were saved from the fire. We get that. That's, that's all the word means. It means that the penalty or the danger or the thing that was going to threaten you, that, that was upon you, You've been saved. You've been delivered from it. You no longer have to fear it. What it means is that Jesus paid our penalty and and he's he's got us out of it. And if we're a follower of Jesus, the greatest gift that you have is your salvation. That's what Peter wants them and us to understand. He says, understand no matter what's going on around you, that in God's great mercy, he's actually delivered you from the eternal death penalty an eternal separation from him that comes as a result of our sin. When we're saved, he forgives us. And then on top of that, he, he adopts us full on as sons and daughters, along with Jesus, joint heirs with Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I really don't get, I don't, I don't understand the, the, the import of that. Joint heirs with Jesus. You know, I, I, I almost hesitate to use this guy in an illustration, but I'm going to. You know, think about Bill Gates. What if he died and you got a notification that you were a joint heir in his will of everything he had? You know, that would impress you. Well, well, folks, you need to be way more impressed that you're a joint heir with Jesus than being a joint heir with Bill Gates. That's incredible. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 18, the Apostle Paul shows perspective. He says, therefore, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He says these little speed bumps in, in what we call life here on earth, those light and momentary troubles. Well, you know, that sounds like a, like a nice cliche to, to put on a coffee cup or, or a poster or, or in a song, Peter, you know, put it on, the, you know, that Jesus junk stuff that you buy at what they, used, what they call Christian bookstores, but they don't have a lot of books and they're not even around anymore. But if you look closer at chapter 11 of the same book, at the chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul goes into depth describing these momentary and light afflictions. He talks there about five times, five times he was flogged with 39 lashes. You know why they did 39? Because the science told them that if he's flogged someone 40 times, they'd probably kill him. So you're only allowed to give him 39. So, so five times he was flogged to the point of near death. He talks about in chapter 11, three beatings he received with metal rods. Three times he was shipwrecked, running for his life in danger, thrown in prison. He calls this momentary and light affliction. Yeah, in light of the glory of his salvation. You know, I'd call any of those things the worst time ever. Like, God, what, what's going on here? You know, beam me up. But Paul had a perspective it's not that he, he loved those things. He, he, he wasn't a masochist. He loved being tortured and, and being beaten. You know, he, he writes his letters from prison. And he's always saying, hey, folks, you know, pray for me that I can get out of here. He wasn't running around saying, oh, how I love to be tortured for Jesus. But he was able to step back no matter what happened to him. And that was perspective. Many of you probably started reading your yearly Bible uh, for this you know, for the year, since it's January, you know, I, I started one, a different one this, this year. And, uh, and th just this past week, I was reading the story of Joseph. And this reminds me of when Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he tells his brothers, after he tell, reveals who he is there in Egypt, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph could have been really ticked off at his brothers. I mean, they did him dirty, didn't they? You know, they, they sold him into slavery. At least they didn't kill him like they were first talking about. But he could have been very upset, and they were afraid that he was going to be upset because that's probably what they, what they would have done. But instead, he understood the perspective because he'd, he'd been walking with God, and he understood that, wow, you know what? God used this so that I could be in a position to be the number two guy second only to Pharaoh himself, and I'm able to save my family. Joseph saw the big picture. He saw God's perspective. And that's what Peter's trying to remind these people of. And that's why this book was written down for all of us who follow Jesus, because we need to remember it. We need to have a, a good perspective on salvation.
The second thing we need to see clearly is this, is our suffering. The second thing we need is our suffering. We have to have a good perspective on it. He says, in light of your salvation, when you are suffering, praise God anyway. You may be going through some of these things so that the genuineness of your faith may be demonstrated. So why do we suffer? I really don't know the whole answer to that. I know some reasons, but there aren't easy answers for this. Biblically, there's at least five reasons that that we as Jesus followers could suffer, and sometimes they end up getting mixed together in the things that we go through. One of them, the chief of them, is that we live in a fallen world. And I don't care how godly you are, unless Jesus comes back before this happens, you're going to die. You're going to die at some point. All of us are. Ever since Adam and Eve, weeds are going to grow in your garden. Childbirth is going to bring pain, and you're going to get older. You say, tell me about it, Walt. It's a fallen world, and in a fallen world, things happen. You break your arm the week before your wedding. It just happens. Another reason is that sometimes we're caught in the backwash. We're completely innocent, but we're caught in the backwash because when people do bad things, guess what? Good people get hurt. They'd always have, and they always will. Even in the body of Christ, even in, in God's people, these things happen. There's a story in the Old Testament about this guy named Achan, and he disobeyed God. And because he disobeyed God, the entire nation suffered when they went to attack a city, the next city. People died because of Achan's sin. And it's because in the unseen realm, in the spiritual realm, we are a body and we are a family, and the sin of one affects the rest of us. We get caught in that backwash, even though we had nothing to do with it. A third reason is it can be self-inflicted. Sometimes we do bring it on ourselves, but we don't like to admit it, do we? You know, one of my favorite sayings is, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. And anyone that's done counseling understands this. Why did God let me get pregnant? Why did God let me get pulled over for the DUI? Why did God let me lose my job for insubordination? It's amazing, but we have self-inflicted injuries and trauma and grief in our lives, and then we're like, well, God, why'd you let this happen? Because you broke it. That's why. Number four, sometimes it's for spiritual training. The things we suffer, Paul talks about this in his letters to the Corinthians, sometimes we go through things so that we can give comfort to others with the comfort that we receive because we've gone through it. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to have gone through stage four pancreatic cancer in order to to minister to someone with stage four pancreatic cancer, but the principles are there. And I know for many spiritual leaders, whatever you want that definition to mean, that much of how we help people is we help people because we walk with them through the pain. We may have gone through it ourselves or, or we may have walked through it before with someone else. You know, pastor and and leadership expert John Maxwell, he's got this one teaching he has, and he titled it, Failures, Flops, and Fumbles. And John says that he's learned more from his failures, flops, and fumbles than he has from any of his successes. As I, in my final tour in the Navy, I was... um, had about 70 chaplains that we were ministering to almost 25,000 sailors on the ships of the East Coast. I did a lot of mentoring. I did a lot of training of, the, of those young chaplains. And where did I draw from? I didn't sit around and tell them about what a great chaplain Walt East was, and that's how you get to be the, the, the fleet chaplain. I didn't, that's not what I was doing. I shared with them my heart. 
I shared about this time that I made this decision or this time that I did that and I misgaged this or, or that. People can learn from mistakes and, and transparency and humility can help people learn. Sometimes you go through things for the spiritual lessons. And then sometimes it's a test. It's a test. And now here's the good news. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has promised that no matter which one, whether it's even if it's self-inflicted, he's not going to let you be tested beyond that which you're able to withstand. He'll put a limit on it. You don't have to break. You might be beat up and it, it might bring you to the point of breaking. You might be caught in the backwash, but you can't handle it. Now, the case that he's talking about here is the very fact that sometimes the things we go through are God's way of affirming to us. You know, he already knows the genuineness of our faith, but he's trying to affirm to us the genuineness of our faith because we don't really know what we're made of until we've gone through the hot water. Remember Peter. We spent quite a bit of time on his life last week. Peter, full of bravado. He talked real big. I'm going to die with you. I'm going to protect you, Jesus. I'm going to do all, all the stuff that we talked about last week. But as soon as a servant girl, warming her hands over the fire, says, hey, you're one of those Jesus followers. He's like, I mean, he just, he just lost it. And it's only as we go through trials that we discover where we need to grow. Or sometimes we discover that we're, we're not what we think we are. And all God's trying to do is affirm us. Now, some of you may have seen these pens. And I've got a $20 bill here. No, I'm not going to give it to you. You've probably been at the store and you've seen the clerk take, uh, take the bill that you hand him and take one of these pens and, and draw on it. And when you draw on this, it turns orange or yellow, orangish yellow there. And you know what that does? That tells me that this $20 bill is genuine. It's the real thing. And that's a picture of, of, of what's trying, what God's trying to do. And the, the clerk isn't saying that she's not trying to wreck the bill. She's not trying to wreck the bill. You know, if you take, this is a, a copy, okay, see the back? You know, if you try to do that on non-cloth-based paper, on cotton, on uh, wood-based paper, if you try to do it, it turns black on there instead of, instead of yellow. They're not trying to wreck the bill. What they're trying to do, because what they want is they want your money, okay? And so they want, and they want good money. So when they're doing that, they're trying to show the genuineness of the money so that then you can exchange and do the transaction that you, that you have. And so Peter's saying this in this passage that these people, that, that part of what you're going through is God's trying to confirm for you. He's trying to demonstrate to you. and He's trying to show the genuineness of your faith because you may have bent, but you didn't break. And so I like this analogy here because, because when you... When you, when you put the, the pen on the, on the genuine bill, yeah, it's kind of messed up for a little while for that, that, with that yellow there, but then that ends up fading away and going away. And that's a good picture of what happens to us. We survive the storm when we're the real deal. Now, I've got some verses listed there in your note sheet for you to go back and, and, and read sometime during the week in Proverbs, Proverbs 24.10, 24.16, and, and 10.25 says this, says, when the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. In other words, when the storm is finished, it's not that we're spared the storm, but we survived the storm. And Peter is saying we need to understand our salvation and we need to understand our suffering. Now, let me give you a little sound bite. I didn't write this in your notes, but I, I'll try to say it slow enough that you can earn a couple of times so you can get it. Never judge... God's goodness. Never judge God's goodness by the mess you're in. Judge it by the future you have. 
Never judge God's goodness by the mess that you're in. Judge it by the future you have. We'll try to put this on our Facebook this week too. In his great mercy, God has granted us what? New birth that will last how long? Forever. I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I can't even conceive of forever. Judge your future by the cross, not the crisis. At the end of the day, we're receiving, as we saw in this passage, the end result of our, of our faith, which is salvation. Judge God's goodness by this. Well, I said there was a third perspective that's laid out in this passage, and we, we've already seen our salvation clearly. We've already seen our suffering clearly. The third thing we need to see clearly is God's silence. Will you agree with me? God's silence can be a frustrating thing. Have you ever been there where you're crying out to God and it's like, hello, are you busy? Do you hear me? What Peter writes, I want you to see with your own eyes, he starts in verse 10 and he talks about things here. He's talking about the, about the prophets. And even though God's silence can be frustrating because we want to know, it's our inquisitiveness, it's the way God, God wired us. Man, mankind is, is inquisitive. We want to know why things are happening. We want to know when things are going to end. He says, listen, you need to have some perspective on this too. Even the prophets who wrote parts of the Old Testament didn't understand everything God was doing. You just, you just look at the religious leaders. You know, they, they understood that they knew the scriptures, but they didn't understand the scriptures because their ways weren't God's ways. God warned them of that in Isaiah. They didn't always understand what, what God was up to, and guess what? Neither do we. And we're in very good company because even Daniel didn't understand. Even Ezekiel didn't understand. Isaiah didn't understand. Even Jeremiah didn't understand. Sure, they understood parts of it, but when it came to God's going to send a deliverer and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. No, wait a minute. No, wait. No, no. And then he's going to be glorified. You know, and the salvation is going to come to the Gentiles and that's going to be included in God's plan. They didn't have a clue. They didn't understand all of that. We would do well to remember that some things won't make sense until later, and that's normal. That's normal. On my first ship, I was the, uh, the gunnery and fire control officer, and um, we made a port call in Palma de Mallorca, Spain, a very beautiful, beautiful island resort area there. Even though it was wintertime, it's still nice to be there. We'd been on the gun line for three months in, uh, in Beirut, and I couldn't understand why we, we finally had, you know, four days of liberty. And I was, as I said, the gunnery and fire control officer, my weapons officer was just all over me, all over me about making sure the guns going over, triple checking, all of a sudden I'm like, we finally get some liberty. We've been on the gun line. We've shot the guns every day in, in, in pre-action calibration firing and all this kind of stuff. He's all over me about this stuff. Well, we left Palma and they had our ship, USS Mullinex. We sailed south. If you know your geography, what's south is this country called Libya. And there was a guy that was the dictator there at the time. His name was Muammar Gaddafi. And there was the Gulf of Sidra is there at the top of Libya. And he had this thing that was called the line of death. And he basically said, we own the entire Gulf of Sidra. If anything comes across that line, we're going to shoot it out of the water. And so what the battle group commander was going to do and the people above him is they decided they were going to send... Molnix, my ship, across that line of death with the aircraft carry out about 40 miles. We were, basically were bait for the trap. And so they sent us down there. And the thing is, that's why my weapons officer was all over me, not to allow my guys to have as much liberty as I wanted to let them have because, you know, we've been on the gun line and stuff. What changed? 
my perspective. At first, he had to be silent. The weapons officer, you know, I wasn't, you know, I was just an ensign at the time, or maybe a JG by that time. I, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't important enough to know what was going on, so my commanding officer and my weapons officer had to be silent about what was going on. But when I found out what was going on, in retrospect, it made a whole lot of sense. And so that's what's understanding the silence, the silence of God. We need to understand God's silence. Now, a little sidebar here. There's always an interest in, in New Testament prophecy. And every time there's a major world event, you know, Christians get on the radio and they write books and they, they grab the newspaper, the Bible, they say, hey, let me tell you what's happening. Let me tell you what's going on. But really what's going on, we're speculating. We have no clue there. At the end of the day, prophecy was not given to the Old Testament authors so that they could know the future. It's not fortune-telling. It was given so that we could recognize it when God did what he said he was going to do. And it's the same thing with prophecies in the New Testament. They're not written so that we can be in the known, so that we can say, okay, here's 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. There's actually a book that was written about that, and then when he didn't come back in 88, the guy wrote 89 reasons for 89. And, you know, he kind of got smart and stopped and stopped there. It's not written so that we can say, oh, I know what's going next. I know what's going to happen next. They're written so that those who are alive then can go, okay, here's God doing what he said he would do. Prior to that, we're struggling mightily to figure out how does this work? What's going on? How how can our speculations uh, make sense? You know, for 2,000 years, people have had prophecy conferences that made sense to them, but they they were dead wrong. So at the end of the day, we need to be willing to accept some ambiguity, to accept some confusion. Even the old prophets of old did. And who are we to think that we're any better than they are? So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, that's what Peter starts talking about next week in verse 13, after he says, therefore. I encourage you sometime this week, it's only five chapters long, read through 1 Peter. Read a chapter a day, Monday through Friday, if you don't want to read it all in in, in one sitting. But we're going to look at the therefore, at what we do in the meantime. First, though, In light of what we've heard today, I would ask you, how is your perspective? How is your perspective? Are you a Jesus follower? When we're talking about salvation, can you say, I know I'm in. The genuineness of my faith is very clear to me. God has has, has shown me that in my life. How's your perspective with regard to salvation? joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!